You are listening to the Farm to Fork podcast, the show that was created for food manufacturers. Each week, we'll investigate into the food industry and dive deeper with the latest leaders in technology and innovation. Hi, I'm Joe. And I'm Andy. And we're from Carlisle Technology. Canadian Food Innovation Network, or CFIN, is a national member-based organization that's stimulating innovation across the Canadian food sector. CFIN connects the Canadian food industry to fresh ideas and technologies that help elevate food businesses and increase their competitive capabilities. We are excited to have the CEO of CFIN, Dana McCauley, join us on the Farm to Fork podcast. Dana, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and the organization that you're representing today? to talk about myself. Thank you so much for that invitation. <laughs> Why doesn't it happen every day? Yes, CFIN is a, a national network. We're funded by the Innovation, Science and Economic Development branch of the federal government. And we exist to champion innovation in the food sector. And, and we do that in a few ways. You know, we have a platform that's called Yodel. It's an online space where companies uh, who need innovative solutions to their problems and companies who have innovative solutions hang out and talk to each other. And then we have these regional innovation directors who help, you know, do some matchmaking and, and some knowledge transfer between those two groups as well. And then once they come up with good ideas for projects, we have some money to fund those projects. So, so far we have put over $10 million into the Canadian economy to fund over 40 projects that are testing out really cool new things that can help Canada to solve problems and grow our economy. I think, you know, I would say probably six months or so ago, we talked with CFIN. I think it was Joe Lake at the time. And we kind of went through some of your platforms with Yodel and you know, kind of what CFIN is all about. And, you know, I was really impressed with the programs that you guys run and some of the success stories that he shared and that kind of spurred, you know, us wanting to kind of know a little bit more about CFIN as well, too. And so, you know, today our topic is going to all be around, you know, the Canadian food sector and how you guys are helping fund uh, these disruptors that come in with new technologies that kind of spark innovation within the industry, because I think that's such a key part to what you guys are doing. But before we get too deep into that, Let's build a little bit of context around the topic. Do you want to talk maybe a little bit about the food industry as a whole? I know it can be complex and overwhelming, even misunderstood sometimes. But do you want to talk maybe a little bit about how big the food industry is and stuff like that? I'd love to because I agree. It, it's a confusing set of terminology that we use. So for instance, a lot of time the government and agencies who, who work with the government will talk about agri-food. And then people in the food business will say, well, I don't do anything to do with agriculture, so I'm just in the food business. But generally speaking, that usually uh, is a mistake. Usually when the government talks about agri-food, they do mean people in food processing and food retail and wholesale, as well as sometimes, but not always, food service. So it's interesting to pull all that apart. And I've done a little bit of research, you know, in context of GDP and jobs that I think helps to, to parse it out a bit. So primary agriculture, which gets a lot of uh, necessary attention, I, I think, you know, obviously, we, we need our farmers to be optimizing how they produce food and, and to use the best methods possible. But primary agriculture, I think a lot of people think of as, as huge and so much bigger than, than the food business. 
business because we export so many you know commodities and things but interestingly when it comes to gdp it's only about 1.6 percent of canada's gdp is primary agriculture so about 32 billion dollars employing a lot of people you know 241,000 plus but then when you look at food if you take those three bundles that i just mentioned the food and beverage processors food retailers and wholesalers and food service providers if you put all of them together that's $90 billion of GDP. So three times as big as agriculture and it employs 1.8 million Canadians, which I saw we just let this week hit the 40 million mark. So that's a, you know, if you take out all the kids and all the old people, that's a lot of working age Canadians who are making their uh, living working in, in one of those three parts of the food industry. So it's, it's a really important part of Canada's economy. It's massive and it's amazing that it affects or it touches and reaches out to so many families, whether they're people that are actively involved, like you said, and employed by the food and beverage industry, or I think everybody can say that they enjoy the food and beverage industry on some level as well, too. So we're all kind of impacted and we see that as just having a major role to play inside of the Canadian economy. Yeah, it, it seems like the the overall growth metrics and tracking for the industry seem to be pointing in the right direction. But Dana, do you see any foreseeable problems to be aware of in the industry or just something that, you know, individuals may have not considered? Oh, there's, you know, that's a, such a big question because, you know, whenever you get into any industry sector, there's there's always lots of, you know, hidden cul-de-sacs and and problems that, you know, don't get written about in in the newspaper. But, you know, generally speaking, the pandemic highlighted how important it is for for, you know, countries, provinces, regions to be as self-sufficient when it comes to food as possible. We all remember the, you know, the the no flour and no yeast in the in the store, uh, you know, kind of thing. And and I think that you know there that yeah and, and just general economic pressure from inflation and just the you know the 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 stress that's on food processors and food service providers in in particular are are you know they're known and they're talked about but no one's really doing anything about them like we still have a monopoly when it comes to our our grocery retailers for instance and is not necessarily you know, ideal when you look at other countries that have have more diversity, you see the, those types of companies be able to make more money because they can, you know, they can charge the real cost of the products that they're selling. So it's very complex and very interconnected. Our main topic today is on, you know, those innovators and those disruptors that kind of come into the industry and try to create new technologies that enhance the industry and, and keep our uh, food manufacturers uh, on more competitive or at least competitive within the the global space. But, you know, one of the biggest things that I would see would be confusing is, you know, how can these, you know, food innovators kind of navigate such a complex industry? It's really quite difficult because, you know, you think in this day and age, oh, just Google it. But back to that point I made earlier about how important words are. If everyone's not speaking the same language and the metadata doesn't allow for really good, easy searches, it's, it's harder than you would think. So we were very surprised to see how starved or thirsty people are in both sides of that innovation equation, the, the builders, disruptors, and, and then those companies that are you know already functioning and, and looking to grow and optimize their businesses by adopting technology and how uh, how how thirsty they were for connection and 
and to know one another and to, to be able to find one another easily. When we first envisioned our Yodel platform, the five-year modeling had us have 3,000 members by year five. We are about seven days out from Yodel's first year anniversary, and we already have almost 3,100 members who are on that platform talking. So it's really interesting to me that the more connectivity we have, almost the more difficult it is to bushwhack through all the information and find the right partners. So we're, we're really seeing that the role of experts who, who know what's going on and who's doing what across the country is, is being really beneficial because if you are operating a business in Saskatchewan and you go to your Saskatchewan Economic Development Agency for help, they're going to give you great help, but it's only likely to be in Saskatchewan. And Canada is a big country and there's so many amazing resources and amazing companies doing innovative things in, in places you wouldn't expect. And I'll, I'll give you a little example. We did a food innovation challenge and that's is our biggest project. We will co-fund projects that are up to $4 million in size. So not a lot of companies can, you know, find $2 million to match our $2 million. But when we did that research, it was so interesting to see that a lot of the companies who were popping up and applying, they weren't, you know, in Toronto or Montreal. They were working in Ottawa, et cetera. And same thing when we did our Food Tech Next call, we got 40 applications from across Canada. And, you know, these are all food tech companies. And we have winners from PEI, from Saskatoon. You know, there's innovation happening in everybody's backyard and <laughs> knowing where to find it is actually pretty complex. I couldn't agree more. I think today's especially we live in the world of excess information to the point where it's very difficult to be able to qualify, disseminate and take credible, reputable source and actually utilize that to plan a, a source of attack, let's say for, you know, improving your business, your operational metrics or trying to at least get a sense of a direction. And I think that's a great point you mentioned on how you have people from other provinces, other, you know, other companies that are coming to actually see, you know, what what can be offered to me in this space. And I think that's a, a really important factor is, you know, getting getting a sense of direction, getting a sense of, is this credible source that is actually going to help me and my business take off to the next point? Just quickly circling back on the disruptor talk. So let's qualify that a little bit more. So can you tell us who the disruptors are and how do they impact the industry as a whole and why they're so important? Sure. So generally speaking, I think of somebody who's disruptive as in a company that's disruptive by extension as being somebody who doesn't just, you know, Google the best practices for something and then follow that. They're generally people who are trying to do something new. So they're creating a new process, a new category sometimes when it comes to grocery in particular. And they are usually, and people use big words like trailblazer and that kind of stuff, but they really are. They're folks who have a, a great idea and have to, even if they're actually not born to sell their idea, because quite often those are really different skills, being you know an innovative thinker and, and builder and being somebody who's a great communicator. Uh, they have to communicate that information to the rest of the world. And if it goes well, if their idea pans out, then those disruptors, they benefit, of course. They own hopefully intellectual property that they can license or you know those kinds of things. But what's great is they've done something transformative and transferable. And that to me is where the real sweet spot of being an effective disruptor lies is that you can make this new cool thing 
And then it helps everybody to do what they've been doing in the past better. And that's where the magic is. Do you see a difference between disruptors, like how you define disruptors versus those that are more, maybe more established technology creators? I don't know what the right word to say would be, but are they the same? Is that line blurred sometimes? Like, what do you think? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And and I'm not, I don't know if there'd be a strong rule about that. I think that, that companies and some cultures, some sectors are probably, you know, disruptable more than others. And then other groups would have some big change that would have a, a longer lasting latency period and, and they'd only really need incremental change. So I think when we when we look at, um, you know, climate change problems, you know, we hear words like decarbonization a lot these days and circular economy, etc. There's probably many disruptions that we could absorb all at once because we're in such dire straits and we need to act so so urgently. In other places, probably incremental change is, is more the norm. So I'm thinking about, you know, for instance, the way we grocery shop and the way we, we dine out. Those are often highly ritualized, you know, ingrained human behaviors. And in those cases, you probably need to spread out those disruptions to let people, you know, adjust and acclimatize to, to the new thing and before you throw too much more at them. And you, you kind of touched on it a little bit. Why would you say disruptors are so important, especially to the food industry? Oh, well, you know, obviously without those people who are thinking big and helping our uh, food processing and other food operators that are closer to the consumer, you know, we just will not see growth with the way the economy is going. Labor is up, ingredients are up, rents are up, everything is up. And if you keep doing everything the same way, you're, you know, you're certainly not going to be making more money because you can't keep putting your prices up, especially if you're in grocery, the retailers will literally not accept it and they'll just list other products. So it's important for our internal economy, but then you know, Canada, you know, we have a social safety net, we're a social democracy. So we can't compete on price internationally. We do have, generally speaking, safe and fair type of working conditions. And we want to keep having that. So if we're going to compete globally and have great exports, we really have to be more innovative than the others. We've got to get to market first with benefits that people are willing to pay for all across borders, et cetera. Yeah, I think that makes absolute sense. And how do you see food manufacturers leveraging these disruptors in order to aid with their operational goals and any sort of, you know, objectives that they may have within the space? It's really interesting because, again, it's not cut and dry. As everything I've talked about so far today, it depends in some cases on the size of the company. So when we get into those MNEs, multinationals, or those companies that are in the billions of dollars, because they aren't always operating in multiple countries, but the, those really big companies, they tend to leverage these disruptors by buying them. They will see something really cool happening out there. They'll probably do a test with that company. And then when the test goes well, they will absorb them which is interesting. And it means that those disruptors, they have to think about their business as a product as well, which is a whole other topic for a podcast. And then when you get into the, the smaller and medium-sized companies who are you know, just trying to grow, the food industry has a strange growth pattern. You rarely see that hockey stick type of growth because it depends on you having space and people, whether you're manufacturing, you know, 
chocolate bars or you are, you know, selling donuts. You only have so much space and so many people to make the food. So you get to a point where you have growth that's quite high, but then you have to plateau because you you need more infrastructure and that requires more investment. So when we see these smaller and medium-sized companies looking for disruptors to partner with, they're often very close to one another and, and they do a lot of communicating. And the goal is generally to either find a way to make more money so that you can buy more capacity or to reduce your costs or reduce the amount of space you need or the amount and number of people you need to do the same thing. So that is a very collaborative relationship, whereas with those bigger companies, it's a lot more proof of concept and then transactional. Do you see it harder for the smaller, like the SMEs you're saying, small to medium guys? Do you think it's harder for them to adopt new innovations and technologies or is it Maybe they're smaller, it's easy to pivot, or maybe they're smaller, so their budgets are smaller, so it's hard for them to wrap their heads around the investment that kind of comes up front. What do you think? I like the language you just used there about harder for them to wrap their heads around it, because some work I did with a group on the national workforce strategy for the food industry revealed that it really wasn't the size of the company or the age or the profitability of the company that limited their ability to adopt new technologies. In a lot of cases, it was the age of the management team. So in companies where you've had the same people in place for the, you know, the the course of a company's growth, you often see a lot lower technology readiness adoption level. And that's because those folks are probably haven't been exposed to a lot of different systems. And in most cases, probably weren't digital natives. When you have a company that has younger people running the company and and contributing to the decision making, there's often, you know, more awareness of what's possible, which is, is really interesting. The other problem, though, for those more established businesses is that, you know, they have invested millions and millions of dollars into technology that either wasn't designed to integrate with digital and digitized systems. You know, it's difficult to, you know, get the right APIs to have everything talk to one another. So it can be more complex. Definitely, you know, younger companies who, you know, are just starting out and can, you know, put in a state of the art type of manufacturing or production system have have an advantage. But I would say to, you know, anybody who is fortunate enough to be in that position, you know, make sure that you're technologies that you're buying are really flexible because you never know, you know, remember the beta VHS thing from back in the 80s, right? Beta was going to be great, but uh, VHS won. So you never can be 100% sure that, you know, the new technology you're choosing is going to be the one that becomes ubiquitous. So try to keep as much flexibility as you can. And I know like, I mean, we're a technology provider ourselves. And so a lot of times when we run into some of the opportunities or the processors or the manufacturers that have, you know, like you said, older generations that have done processes a certain way for a long time, we do run into, you know, a lot of times is, well, this is the way we've always done things or that mentality of not really wanting to change and seeing that change in process and change in technology can be scary almost at times. So there's that hesitancy of adopting these new technologies, right? There is a hesitancy because, you know, there's mentality of if it's not broke, why fix it? And if you're already, you know, really tight in your margins, well, hey, shutting down your plant or your, you know, your whole 
production space for your whole store for a day and trying something new, well, gosh, you better have a very high likelihood of success because it's not just the cost of what you did that day that, that you're dealing with. It's the cost of that lost production and lost sales, right? And kind of just pivoting back to the disruptor point. So what are some of the potential losses if the disruptors aren't heard? And what are some steps that can be taken from the individual perspective in the entire industry in order to amplify their messaging? Well, in, you know, it's something that keeps me up at night is that, you know, we're funding all of these projects over 40, as I mentioned, and they're generally speaking going really well. But what happens when they're done? You know, so what? You did something really cool. And so, you know, how do you extend that success into, you know, actual widespread practice? So there's a risk that if we don't have ways to support, you know, the successes that, you know, that will all be a lot of wasted work for my team and wasted tax dollars for, for Canada. So, you know, there's that piece. And then, you know, just as I said earlier, if we aren't innovating and we aren't keeping up, we aren't leading the way, you know, we will really fall behind the the rest of the world and we won't be competitive. And I don't think that, you know, the time we don't want to continue to just be an exporter of raw materials. That is a commodity game. And we will not be able to compete with other other countries who can grow and produce commodities, you know, with labor and, and inputs that are, are much, much lower than ours. So it's it's vital that these disruptors get an opportunity to test and validate their technologies and then to, you know, get the support of the media, the food community, the, you know, export agencies, et cetera, so that they, uh, you know, are, are, are adopted because uh, what a waste if, if we prove them out and then, and then we don't actually use them. They're absolutely an integral and paramount resource for not only the industry as a whole, but absolutely a global competitive advantage and for the country as a whole. I couldn't agree more. And you, you touched a little bit about you know the stages of innovation. So I think that's a great next topic to go to. So each stage of the development cycle is going to require a different type of support or partners. So you know what does that look like across the various stages in the context of CIF and you know, so for stage one, two, et cetera? Yeah, so I'm not sure, you know, if your podcast listeners are familiar with TRL levels, but, you know, technology readiness scale goes from zero to nine. And and zero is where a scientist, an engineer, you know, some researcher says, Eureka, and jots down, you know, their discovery. And, And nine is where one of those ideas is at the point where it has reached scale. So it is, it's everywhere, right? So we work in that along that scale between sort of two and seven. So seven is is a really important technology readiness level number because that's where a technology has been proven and it's in market, it has repeat sales. And that's that point that I just mentioned earlier that, you know, where it really needs that extension and can scale between, you know, and become transferable as I talked about earlier. So where we tend to work is at that early stage. So the company who are in the, the one, two, three level who are our members, they have, you know, usually a great idea. They might have done something on a small scale to prove out that, you know, that their idea can be built to work and be cost effective. 
And so at that stage, they really need partners who are test beds. And that's where those companies that I talked about having that technology readiness level came in. And, and they also really need to have partners who can do the scientific third-party technical validation that's required to later on get all the right regulatory approvals, et cetera, et cetera. So in the case of, say, a compost biodegradable plastics more efficiently, for instance, they would need to work with a lab who could validate that their claims of how quickly their technology actually you know, did that, that they could advertise and, and stand behind. And then as, as those types of tests finish and as these companies grow, then they go to needing you know, partners who want to invest. They need money to, to build plants and to build you know, bigger, better versions of what they've tested with the other partners. The same way we have a technology readiness level scale, there's also a could be a partnership continuum that we could build right along next to it. And it's not different from any other type of industry in food. It's very similar to what you see in the tech world and the equipment world as well. So I think that's pretty universal. Can we talk maybe a little bit too about, you know, you said the different stages that you guys possibly partner with innovators. What are the different programs you have for the various stages when you come alongside them? Yeah. So, you know, as I mentioned, we have Yodel, which isn't really a program. It's just, it's a resource that, you know, where people can find funding, for instance, and they can find partners and they can talk about issues and engage with, with content. And that's 24 seven, you know, every day. And we have our regional innovation directors who work with, you know, our disruptors and our technology adopters to make sure they know each other. And then we have three different funding programs right now that we offer, and we're, and we're hoping to expand the number of programs we have in the future with, with regional offerings. But right now we have three national programs. One's the Food Innovation Challenge, which is sometimes themed and sometimes wide open because we, we, we use it as a way to you know, learn as well about what's happening out there in the country. The applications are fascinating, to be perfectly honest. And, and those are really big projects where we need to have a two to five partners. So there'll be that disruptor, there'll be the testbed partner that's usually an SME or an MNE. And usually some of those service providers are funded through that kind of activity as well. Then we have innovation boosters, which are quick turnaround programs that are usually, you know, a disruptor will apply for. And they'll say, hey, you know, if we can solve this one problem, we'll click over to another TRL level. And, uh, and those are exciting because they sometimes happen in, in just a few months and it just, you know, blows open a whole bunch of, of new opportunities for these, these companies. And then we have a, a really exciting program called Food Tech Next, where we look for the top new or less developed food tech companies. They don't necessarily have to be new. They just have to have less than a million dollars in revenue. And we help them to get a, a project going that will, you know, move their technology from, you know, a, a theory to a real product. And that's all about partnerships. So your last question was perfect when talking about them. It's all about getting the right community around them. We really believe that collaboration, information sharing 
is vital to innovation. So we try to grow like a little ecosystem. It's very similar to that. It takes a village to raise a child concept. We think it takes, you know, a village to to um, move a technology from idea to market. And, and we actually graph it out. We look to see, you know, how many logos we can build around these different companies to make sure that they have all the input and all the resources they need at their fingertips. And so what is the process for engaging with the CFIN program for prospective manufacturers? Yeah, it's really easy. We, um, our membership is free to anybody working in food in any way at all. So if you're a professional food person, you go to CFIN website. You can even just type in yodel.ca and you'll, you'll get there and sign up. It takes about two minutes and you're a member. And as soon as you're a member, you find out who your regional innovation director is and you get invited to use Yodel and you start getting information about our program. We're not trying to make it difficult to join our club. We're, we're pretty much a come on in kind of a group. I can vouch for you there. I know, you know, as soon as we learned about you guys, we were immediately wanting to kind of get on the bandwagon. And so you know, the process was really easy just to get kind of plugged in and signed up and set up with the Yodel stuff. And it's been very smooth. So I agree. It's you guys have done a lot to remove hurdles and, you know, barriers of entry to get into the the programs. I'm glad your experience was good. That's thank you for telling me that. Yeah, definitely. So let's get into some success stories. So kind of starting it off, do you want to just maybe talk about some of the companies across the various stages of development that you've worked with that you're kind of allowed to kind of share some information with us? Sure. Yeah. I mean, obviously I, I won't share any, um, you know, any proprietary info, but we've had so many, you know, with 40 projects, it's, it's a bit of a Sophie's choice. You're asking me like, oh, tell us about the cool project. Like the, as far as I'm concerned, they're, they're all really cool. So normally we see projects that are, you know, centered in big cities or they have, you know, companies that are, are you know, household names across the country involved with them. But in this case, we have two growing companies from Ottawa working together. One is called Food Cycle Science and the other is Bridgehead Coffee. So if you have ever used one of those biodegradable, you know, rigid plastic-like, you know, forks, you know that like you're like do I put this in my composter do I put this in my blue bin will anything happen to it you know is it really going to biodegrade so they are tackling this issue and what they have come up with is really super cool it's about the size of a normal garbage bin and it's a food recycler that Bridgehead will put all their coffee grounds into as well as all that stuff that we, you know, are told is biodegradable. But then we hear on the news that, you know, landfill in Toronto won't take it and landfill here won't take it, et cetera. So they are finding a way, and I think it's in as short as 24 hours, to break down all this stuff and have a soil amendment that can be used. So that's kind of a huge game changer when you think about food service and food manufacturing. If, you know, all of our packaging or a lot of our packaging could become, you know, biodegradable and go into these basically, you know, accelerated composting unit. And actually, you know, I could buy some at the garden center or you maybe even pick it up for free in my municipality. Wouldn't that be a wonderful change? Yeah, that's amazing. That's pretty cool to hear, especially, you know, as you talk about going from maybe more of an industrial scale at, you know, the manufacturing level to down to what could this possibly even look like in our homes, which would be kind of neat to see as well, too. 
Can you tell us some, about some of the hurdles and pitfalls that you've seen some of the companies that you've worked with through the development stage, you know, what, what they've kind of wrestled with when it's, when it comes to this process? You know, you'd think it was be money and, and money is important. I'm not going to, you know, minimize that, but it's often communication. You know, when you're trying to tell someone that you're doing something new and you yourself are so in it. And generally speaking, the these innovators are, are people with, you know, technical backgrounds, engineers, scientists. There's that first hurdle of getting people to understand what you can do. And that knowledge transfer is, is really difficult. Then once you start working with a, you know, a company, you know, is, is eager to be your test bed, then that collaboration piece, we see a lot of difficulties spring up, particularly early on where people are, you know, starting to do the project and they're like, oh, oh, that's what you meant. No, 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 no. We, we met, we thought that was something else. And, and so, and then later on, as I mentioned, once you have these results, communicating them and getting cutting through the noise and through the hype to get to the partners who are actually going to adopt your technology and make it mainstream that's really difficult so i would say yeah just communication is really hard well i love the recycling one and kind of breaking down those plastics any other success stories or anything that just kind of pop out to you i know you've done so many different projects but any that just are stand out that you want to tell our audience about before we go on some of the really fun projects for me, you know, I grew up, you know, in the time of, you know, the Jetsons and the Space Age and all that stuff. So I love robots. So what I love, uh, the projects we're doing where the company is, you know, using technology to take crappy jobs, I guess, off of the hands of people. So we have a couple of those. We are working with a company called Gastronomist and their partner Recipe, which owns like Harvey's, Swiss Chalet, you know, like it's a huge company. And they have created this grill, which, you know, if you've ever gone into a burger joint, there's usually a person standing over this big rectangle, right? And they're flipping burgers and they're toasting buns and all that stuff. Well, this totally changes that dynamic to free that person who normally would, you know, work over the grill and get all that heat on their, their faces all day so that they are kind of just coming and going. And instead of being a rectangle, it's a circle that moves and it has sensors in it so it can detect what kind of patty you've put on, whether it's, you know, a quarter pound patty or, you know, a, a chicken patty, you name it, and it will cook it to the perfect food safety temperature without overcooking. It'll make sure the temperature is right all the time. And yeah, it's just like, it's just, it's great on, on every level. Then we have another company called uh, Sabotica and they're trying to figure out if you ever go and get like a Buddha bowl or a salad, you know, at a food court, you know, that it's a person who you tell them, you know, I'll have some corn, I'll have some chickpeas, I'll have, you know, this dressing, that dressing. Well, in the future with this technology they have, that all that order information will go into a system and this robot will just plunk all the stuff on top of your lettuce and the person will that works the counter will be able to do three or four times as many of those bowls. And that sounds simple, but think about the different sizes of a chickpea versus a piece of broccoli versus tomato and what kind of, you know, tension and and compression that they can handle. So it's actually a really pretty sophisticated robot that can pick up a piece of tomato, you know, and dispense dressing, you know, in the next two seconds. 
even the fact that the tomato is not normal surface, it's slippery, it's got weak spots and firmer spots, and it's not like a consistent texture, right? That's amazing. Yeah, so I think we've had a great and interesting discussion today, you know, just recapping over the overview of the Canadian food sector and where it's headed, discussing and disseminating who these disruptors are and the value that they provide, not only for the industry as itself, but the country as a whole, going through what those stages of innovation look like and how CFIN can plug in and help, you know, those various processors along the journey and, you know, some of the success stories associated with that. But Dana, what would your call to action be today for our audience today in terms of the Yodel platform and getting plugged in and getting involved with the community? Yeah, I think anyone who's interested in joining Yodel should. I mean, there's no downside to it. You can choose all your preferences and, you know, we've got really strong privacy rules and that kind of thing. And I think, you know, joining and starting to get a sense of what people are talking about and engaging with our content. We put up new content every day, whether it's video or blogs or, you know, some stats and reports, that kind of stuff. And I just think that you know, it'll help you to kind of seed your imagination. And after a couple of weeks, you you might find that you've got quite new ideas and that you feel pretty excited about doing new things. Oh, that's great. Well, we've really appreciated you giving us the time. And, and like Joe said, just kind of walking us through the different stages of innovation and how you're helping disruptors. Uh, we're excited about everything CFIN's doing, and we just wish you guys kind of all the best. Absolutely. And to anybody listening to currently on the podcast today, make sure to head over to CFIN, become part of Yodel, get involved, don't be an island, be part of the ecosystem and learn how to support and be associated with the industry. So thank you very much, Dan. And we really appreciate your time. You're welcome. And I'm glad we got this opportunity to not be an island. I like it. <laughs>